thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight we're going to take on Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 through 22, verse 5. This is the culmination. In a, in a sense, this is the, the end of the vision that St. John has received from the Lord. And in this vision, he is going now to behold the bride of Christ, the church, in her splendor. Uh, there are many, many points of reference in scripture to these passages, namely the book of Ezekiel, the vision that Ezekiel had of the glory of the church, the book of Isaiah, specifically chapters 61 and forward, between 61 and 66, the book of Jeremiah, the chapter 40, as well as the book of Daniel. There is therefore a very rich prophetic backdrop to all of this, and we also are going to see echoes of what St. John is describing in the letters of St. Paul. Why am I mentioning this? Because there is, in a sense, a beauty to Scripture where all the parts truly fit in an interlocking puzzle that reveals something about the beauty of Christ. This is important for us because the more we understand that Scripture is all very well connected, the more that we understand there is an inner logic to Scripture that makes it hold together, the greater our faith will be. It helps build up our faith in the Word of God. Always remember that the way to faith is through reason, not emotions, not how we feel about things, how we understand things. Emotions are a great propeller a wonderful springboard to move us forward. But on their own, they cannot maintain that momentum. We lose it quickly unless reason understands what, why we believe. That is not to say that faith is reduced to reason. It simply means that there is a harmony between reason and faith. Just as there is a harmony between all the musical parts in a symphony and a director. Right? Each part alone cannot bring you the symphony. The director alone will not be able to bring the symphony, but it's the, the combination of both that make music be music. So likewise, we can't have faith alone. We can't have reason alone. We need faith and reason. That's a subject that we're going to take up again when we look at the book of, of Genesis, the second part, when we talk about the relationship in the garden between Adam and Eve, when we explore 
one of the most important characteristics of a human being, namely createdness. We are creatures, and it is something we don't think enough about. What does it mean to be a creature? And this has been the main, main theme of St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, Joseph Piper, the German uh, philosopher and the leading Thomist of this century, said that if we were to summarize the the, the thought of St. Thomas, it would be in this one word, createdness. We are creatures. And so... As creatures, we have reason and we have faith, and we need both to understand and believe what God had promised to us, especially in trying times. With that, let us begin with verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I'm reading from chapter 21. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without price from the fountain of the water of life. He who conquers shall have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, as for murderers, fornicators, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their lot shall be in a lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So let's take that part first. Notice in the first three verses, in the first first, uh, five verses, the word new is repeated three times. There's three new things, a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, and then everything is made new. The new heaven and a new earth denotes what? What do they denote? The new covenant. Very very good. It is not about a physical creation. This is not the literal meaning. This is not the intended meaning. The eschatological meaning, the meaning of the end times would apply, but that's not what's at stake here. How do we know that? Well, a little bit later on, he says, what does he say he's going to do? Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Well, this, if this was about the new creation, after the end of the world, the consummation of the age, there would be no tears that needed to be wiped out. So obviously, it is not about that. It is about this age. Hence, the new heaven and the new earth cannot be understood materialistically. They need to be understood sacramentally. They need to be understood in terms of the new covenant. And we will see the elements of the covenant showing up right here. I'll show you how those elements that we've seen in the letters reappear here as a form of echo or a conclusion or an assertion one more time of the authority of Jesus Christ. So three new things are going to be done in this order. First, the new covenant is established. As a result of the new covenant, what do we have? A new Jerusalem who is the bride of Jesus Christ. Right? So the new covenant brings with it the bride, just as a wedding brings with it the bride. 
And once the bride has been revealed, and recalled from the very beginning of the study, what I told you about the word revelation. It is truly about the moment when, on the seventh day of the Jewish wedding, the Jewish wedding lasted seven days, or seven days of festivities, and on the seventh day, when the bride and the groom are together in the inner tent, correspondingly to what? To the Holy of Holies. Hmm? They've entered into this inner tent. The bride lifts her veil. That is Apocalypsis, Revelation. And that's what we see here. All right? And when the church is revealed, what is the third new that follows? All things new. Notice the order. The church comes down, and then through the agency of the church, the Lord makes all things new. And we will see that in this text as it's developed. Then there is the affirmation of the divinity of Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega. That's a cynic doc. It's a metaphor that says, I am going to tell you about everything by telling you about the edges. Right? When he says the Alpha and the Omega, he's basically saying, I am everything by telling you about the beginning and the end. He's aff- that's an affirmation that says, I am everything. I am the one who contains everything. This is a divine affirmation. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Right? And then there is this promise, which is covenantal. Blessings and curses. Notice the covenantal structure. There are blessings followed by curses. Right? What are the blessings? To the thirsty, I will give water without price. But a long list follows. To these, what will he give? Hell. Condemnation to hell. All right? So there is this covenantal structure, which we've seen in the letter, where there is first the affirmation of the strong party. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. I am the strong party. I establish this covenant, and I will give blessings and curses. Okay, So there is this recapitulation of what has been promised in the letters. Now it is accomplished. And notice that Jesus is speaking to St. John, an apostle of his church. This language is directed not to the world, it is directed to his church. You understand that? The focus is his church. And it is the duty of the church, you... To take those words and make it make them known to the world. Then we are to see the bride. The angel carries Saint John to uh, in the spirit to a high mountain, and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. I'm reading from verse ten. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation, and on them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its breadth. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and breadth and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by man's measure, that is, an angel's. The wall was built of jasper, 
while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every jewel. The first was jasper. The second was sapphire. The third, agate. The the fourth, emerald. The fifth, onyx. The sixth, carnelian. The seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, topaz. The tenth, chrysoprase. The eleventh, jacinth. The twelfth, amethyst. Verse 21, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And, his, and the city had, has no need of sun or moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light shall the nations walk, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it, and its gates shall never be shut by day, and there shall be no night there. They shall bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean shall enter and enter it, nor anyone who practices abominations or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So what we have here in the second part is the description of the city. We have the description of the side, the size of the city. It's a square. The sides are 15, um, 12,000 stadia. 12,000 stadia is equivalent to about um, 1,500 miles. Thank you. 1,500 miles. So the length, the width, and the height of the city is 1,500 miles. What does that suggest? It's not materialistic. Let's not confuse materialistic with real. How do we know that? What is the meaning of it? Well, what is, what is the dimension given? 12,000. What is 12,000? 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. What is 12? The number of Israel, right? 10 is what? Lots, right? Lots times lots times lots. Three times lots means what? All of them. All of? Israel. What is the church? All of Israel. Get it? So, again, don't be fooled by a materialistic interpretation because it will lead you really astray. So we have a description of the city. We'll go back and look at it in detail. And after that, beginning with chapter 22, verse 1, we read something about the river. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, which with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There shall no more be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall worship him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads, and night shall be no more. They need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Here we have a combination of a series of images that we saw in the Old Testament. The, the idea of a river, and the idea of a city, and the idea or images of the bride, all combined together into one iconic description of the church. Right? So the river... Brings us back to what? Genesis. Remember Genesis? There's one river that flows in Genesis that breaks into four rivers that nourish the world. That's the river. So there's Genesis imagery built in. Recall throughout the whole book of Revelation, I've constantly pointed out to you how Genesis is in the backdrop of most of what we're seeing. 
earlier on in the description of the city, every gate has an angel. Where do we see an angel manning a gate? Genesis, right? But then, back then, the angel was placed so to do what? To prevent someone from entering. Here, the angel is placed to do what? To allow someone to enter. To protect the city, but keep the doors open. So that the nations will come and offer their honor and glory. What does it mean to offer their honor or glory? It means to submit. Where did we see kings offering honor and glory? The Magi. What did they do? They submitted to Jesus Christ. So again, there's this idea of Christmas where all the kings of all the nations will come and submit honor and glory to the king. That is why we say truthfully that the church reigns over the nations. It is not metaphorical. It is essential to the truth of Jesus Christ to say that his church reigns and he reigns in her. That is the nature of the church. Now that we've seen you know, the overview, let's go back and walk through some of those details. Beginning with verse 1. First of all, let's, let's look at, um, at some overall comments. So this is the last major vision that reveals the bride from heaven. And there are two things this vision is teaching us. Notice in the reading that St. John is brought to the top of a high mountain and he sees the city coming down from heaven. The city is in the process of coming down. Nowhere does the text state that the city has landed, so to speak, on the top of a mountain. The city has not touched earth, right? This is a very important consideration because what did we say about the liturgy? Liturgy is that point where, in space where heaven and earth touch. It is that point where we are in the cloud, in the spirit, in the presence of the throne of God, the substantial throne of God, but we are present there sacramentally. So therefore, it is a reality that is ever-present and is not yet. It is ever-present and is not yet. That's the duality of the church. Therefore, the one mistake we should never make when we talk about the church is to reduce the church to her physical structure. That's one error we are tempted to make. And many outside the church and within the church make that error. How could you say the church is holy? Look at all the problems the Catholic Church has. Look at all these abuses of the priest. Look at this, look at that. This is a reductionist view of the church, reducing her only to the physical, historical, point-in-time reality and ignoring everything else. That's a mistake, which this text is protecting us from. And the other extreme is to reduce the church to this sort of um, foggy thing. We are the church type thing. There's no hierarchy. What do we need a hierarchy for? We, we, are, we are the church. All the Christians are the church. All those who believe in Jesus Christ are the church. That's nonsense. Why? Why is it nonsense? Every single demon in hell believes in Jesus Christ. The devil believes better than you and me. You understand? 
There is no doubt in the devil's mind that Jesus Christ is true man and true God. None whatsoever. There is no doubt in the mind of, the, of, of Satan that Mary is the mother of God. Glorified in heaven and earth. There is no doubt in the mind of the devil that every teaching of the Catholic Church are true. That the Pope is infallible. He knows more about Catholic theology than all of us put together. He believes. So what is he lacking? Charity. Charity. Right? Caritas. The love of God. That's what he does not have. That's, that's what he lacks utterly. The love of God. Right? The understanding that God is merciful. The mercy of God is something he, can, uh, not, he cannot put up with. That's what he's lacking. And the mercy of God cannot be understood apart from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and the gift of a sacrifice, which is what? The church. Which lets St. Augustine to say, he who does not have the church for his mother, the Catholic church for his mother, does not have God for his father. Again, let us be, beware of materialistic interpretation. He never meant, meant by this that only those who are formally recorded in the, book, uh, in, the, in the Catholic church are the ones who make it to heaven, right? And the church in the Council of Vatican II expanded on that and make it a lot clearer for us. So, the, 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 the idea, therefore, it is the central idea is the church. As I told you, in the middle of the book, we see Mary, who is the prototype of the church, the epitome of the church, the ideal of the church. And at the end of the book, we see what? The church coming down. So, think about the three extremities of the book, the three triptychs. The book begins with what? Letters to the churches. The middle of the book is about what? Mary. The end of the book is about what? The church coming down. I mean, how louder does St. John have to yell for us to understand he's talking about the church and the powers of the church? That is the, the, the point of meditation that we all should take with us as we move into Christmas. That Christ effectively died, yes, to save the world, but more properly, Christ died for his bride. What is at stake here is the salvation of the world, Absolutely. But more importantly, the holiness of the church. And so we should, we ought, for the love of Jesus Christ, develop a real devotion and real true filial love to the Catholic Church. That we should love the church. And if anything, the house of, the house of Nazareth with St. Joseph and Our Lady and Jesus teach us the love of the church. Because that was... The ideal of the church, right there. That's why Jesus spent 30 years with Our Lady under her roof with St. Joseph. Not because he was wasting time, but because he wanted to show us, to give us the pattern, the model of how the church ought to behave throughout the ages in this hidden fashion. So we're not here to seek our own glorification. We're not here to seek our own success. We're not here to write a biography of ourselves on YouTube to let the people know how good and how great we are. This is not about us. We are just, you know, like grass fleeting away, the book of uh, Sirach tells us, and the book of Wisdom says so. We're a moment here and we're gone. It's not about us. It's about the glory of God and the glory of His church. We've already put, touched upon the fact this is not about the end times, because after the end times there are no tears to be wiped, because no one will be ever sad again after the end times are done over with. Therefore, it is about... This age, the last age, the new age, the age we live in, that will reach, will come to conclusion at the end of times. And then when we look at the verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, 
we will see we will see the structure of that covenantal lawsuit I had mentioned to you at the very beginning of the book of Revelation. You would notice, remember from a covenantal lawsuit, that there are these five parts. There's a preamble where the strong party announces who he is and why he has the right to do what he's going to do. Then there is the historical prologue. In this specific instance, the historical prologue has been completely omitted because this is coming at the end of conclusion of the entire book. So the whole book effectively serves as the prologue for what is to come. Then there's an ethical stipulation, which are the end of verse 6 and 7. To those who are thirsty, I will give. And to all those who do all these things, it's going to happen. Then there are the blessings and the sanctions in verse 8. And then, a very important element of the covenantal lawsuit is the succession. Who's going to succeed? Who's going to reign in place of the king while he's gone away? And what do we have here? Beginning with verse 9, the bride. So from the covenantal lawsuit structure, you see what God is doing. He's established this covenant. He told us in very succinct terms, in a very condensed way, the blessings and the curses. And then he says what? Listen to mom or else. And he's basically saying, let me show you how beautiful your mother is. He's like a what? He's like a, uh, a groom who is in love with his bride and who would like the world to see the beauty of his bride. So I know that I go, you know, sometimes I I chide myself because the Bible study tend to be very mechanistic. Okay, this verse and that verse and Isaiah and, you know, we jump all over the place. But let's not miss, let's not lose track of the underlying message of love that is inscribed in the text. This is a God in love. This is the masterpiece of God coming down from heaven for our good. He's adopting us as His children and He's giving us a mother to care for us. That's what He's doing. And He cannot wait to show us how beautiful His his bride is. Ultimately, there is only one Christmas gift. One. Mary and the church. That's it. Because this is the gift that Christ gives us. Feel the joy of Christmas in the text. Because it is joyful. And if you don't, that's okay. It's not something that comes easily. It takes some meditation. So take that text tonight, or during this period of Advent, and read it personally. Read it as a personal gift from God to you. This city that is coming from heaven is for you. And just meditate on that. Talk to Jesus about it. It's like he just, it's Christmas. You just open that gift. He's right there. He gave it to you. What do you say? Well, at the very least, at the very least, you ought to say, thank you. Right? I mean, how often do we thank Jesus for the church? Instead of grumbling and mumbling about all the problems we see. How often do we really say, from the bottom of our heart, Lord, I really want to thank you for the church. What a wonderful gift you gave us. How miserable we would be without her. How often do we do that? We just take it for granted. Not only that, we look at it as the burden. Okay? So, keep, keep that in mind. 
So that's, you can see therefore, as I said right now, the structure of this covenantal lawsuit that he establishes one more time, as if he needs to repeat it one more time to make sure we understand what he has been saying all along throughout the entire book. Right? What does he say? As we said earlier, a new heaven and a new earth he gives us, a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, from, from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, who is Jesus Christ. And then there is the adoption. He says, I am going to dwell with them. So what does dwell with them means? I am going to be present. Right? The holy presence of God. So there is the Eucharistic undertone here. Completely present. He is truly present. Right? That's what he meant. He didn't mean symbolically. This is a good thing to ask those Christians out there who say they have a hall. Where is Jesus present in this hall? And why is it more present there than outside? Where is the new Jerusalem that came down from heaven? Where is it? Show me. Then he says, it is done, which recalls what? The words he spoke on the cross. It is finished. Right? It is done. What is done in this case? The revelation of the church. Exactly. The establishment of the church, which he began on the cross, is now complete. It is done. Because it takes the twofold action of Jesus dying on the cross to open up the gates of heaven for us and make possible the coming down of the new Jerusalem. But then it takes what? The foundation, there are the apostles. So it takes the works of the apostles to lay the foundation. And as we saw last time, the first and foremost foundation was that of St. Peter. Right? And all the other apostles, it takes that foundation to raise the structure. It is done. To the thirsty, I will give water without price from the fountain of the water of life. What is the fountain of the water of life? Baptism. There's definitely a baptismal imagery, you're right. His blood, but more specifically, himself. Right? He is the fountain. From which the water springs, right? The, notice the image of uh, divine mercy, right? Remember on the cross when the water and blood flowed from his side? He is the fountain of divine. So he will give himself, again, notice the Eucharistic undertone. He is not only present, but he will give himself to those who, will, who are thirsty. Are you thirsty? That's another really good key point of meditation during this Christmas. Are you thirsty? And what are you thirsty for? The love of God, yes. But what does that mean, the love of God? I mean, there's definitely many... That's why I recommended you come to this healing mass. Many of us are in need of emotional healing. Many of us have had... have been emotionally bruised as they grew up. Uh, you, you might... You, there's, a, a, there's a whole bunch of different exp explanations of why we're emotionally bruised, but it can be summed up in one word for 90% of us. And that one word is contraception. Many of us have the bruises in our, in our, in our soul, in our heart, because of the contraceptive generation that we come from. Right? That had created dysfunctional families and had created so many problems. Okay? So that's, we, need, we need that. We need that sense of comfort. That sense that somebody really cares about us. Right? And we need to feed it in our bodies because we have bodies. Right? That's why when we love someone, we don't just tell them we love them. What do we do? We put our hand on a shoulder or we give them a hug or 
we express our love physically, which as a digression, I always ask people who are uh, very much against uh, spanking. I don't mean child abuse, I mean spanking. There's a big difference between the two, right? When you love your child, do you just sit the child down and talk to him and tell him that you love him and you make sure he understands he loves him? You know? No. You don't do, why don't you? Well, because you know, you're going to give the... Why do, you, why do you have to have that physical touch for love? Because the child needs it. And you know what? Sometimes, for justice, the child also needs, it to, needs to feel it in his body. Because that that's how he learns best. Not through the rational... Right? So, just keep that in mind. There, there is a, it, it, we, we've got bodies. Got some news for you. We have a body. And, and so, yes, definitely, there is this sense of the tenderness, the consolation of the Holy Spirit present. But beyond that, what does it mean to thirst? What did Jesus say on the cross? Think about that and think about what Mother Teresa said, how she understood that, that word to mean. What, what did she say Jesus meant when he said, I thirst? See, it's interesting, isn't it? He thirsts for our love. So if you thirst for, for being loved, you should understand Jesus on the cross. And that should be a great source of meditation on Christmas. Because the baby in the manger, Mary takes the baby, wraps him in swaddling cloth, and does something really strange that no mother normally would do. Instead of holding the baby against her and keeping the baby in her arms, which, which is what any mother would do, Mary puts the baby in something where cows eat. Why does she do that? Think about it. And if you want to know more, I'm going to be uploading the whole series on St. Luke on the website. Hint. So you can go on and then check that out. But, but really think about why does she do that? I thirst, he said. So here again, what are we thirsting for? And then there is a list of all these other activities. And I would like to say a couple of words on those. Cowardly, faithless, polluted, murderers, fornicators, sorcerers, idolaters, liars. What is intended by this list? It is not intended, what, what, what God is not trying to tell us, he's not trying to say that if someone, let's say, has, a, uh, has fallen into habitual sin, Right? Let's take someone who's fallen into some habitual sin of sorts. Right? Use your imagination. I'm sure you can come up with a couple of ideas. Is that person included in this list? Is that what God has in mind? Is that how he's going to judge it? No. Not at all. I said that before, but bears repeating. If this person who's fallen into this habitual sin detests himself and the sin, and wishes with, from all his heart that he is not committing the sin. He's not in that list. Why? Because he has contrition. He has love of God. He has a sincere love of God, but he's unable, unable to help himself. So by showing constant contrition, he's actually giving glory to God. We tend to be hard-hearted most of the time because we tend to judge people purely by the action. Right? That's not how God judges God judges the heart. And if someone is doing something and wishes not to do it, and really sincerely would like not to do it and be free from it, that is a person who truly thirsts, doesn't he? He thirsts for God. You, you understand? So I, I don't want you to, especially in this day and age where 
you know, a certain activity is very prevalent among young men, and um, and there are so many occasions on the internet and otherwise to get oneself tangled up into these unfortunate activities. These people might think that they are accursed from God. But if they are sincerely seeking God and wanting to do His will and trying everything they can to get out of this, and even if they are not yet able to do it, but they persevere. Wasn't that the message in the whole book? Those who persevere, as long as they are persevering in praying, not losing hope, wanting to, thirsting for God, they are glorifying God. It is those who do these things and justify themselves and think they have the right to do it and find excuses and are content in doing them. Those are the ones who fall into this list. That's why Jesus said he judges the intention of the heart. In verse 1, I'm just going to go quickly through some of the verses because I got 12 pages of notes and I think I'm able to make it in one hour. So, um, verse 1, the sea was no more, right? Why does he say the sea was no more? What is intended by the sea was no more? Is that a materialistic view of the sea? God has, you know, has had it with the sea. He gets seasick, so he just said, no more sea, we're done. Tough if you like fishing, not going to be any fish. Is that, is that what is meant? So, recall from our studies that in the sea, there are multiple meanings to the sea, right? The sea is seen as the origin of cosmic evil. We saw that in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verse 6, 12, verse 18, 13, verse 1, and 15, verse 2. It is also the unbelieving religions, religious, uh, the unbelieving nations who cause tribulation for God's people. And that's in 12.18, 13.1. It is also the place of the dead in chapter 20, verse 13. And it's the primary location of the world's idolatrous trade activity, which we saw in chapter 18, verse 10 through 19. Finally, it also means a literal body of water. Sometimes, as I said, sometimes used as an indication to talk about the entire old creation. So it's like, taking a part to speak of the rest. right? The sea seen as the old creation. So, effectively, the, the, the symbolic meaning of the sea is what is mine, in mind here. Not so much the body of water, but the, the nations as being the source of threat to the church. The, the, the idolatrous uh, activities done through the sea. Effectively, what this is saying is that the church will permeate the world and provide the world with a Christian view on their own activities. It doesn't necessarily mean that those activities will cease, but the sea as a completely separate body, as a completely separate way of thinking that has nothing to do with the, the will of God, ceases to exist. And is permeated with Christian values. And as I told you multiple times, the world today is, is imbued with Christian values, whether they, they like to admit it or not. But the sense of justice the sense of democracy, the sense of making sure everyone has his due and his right, are, are all Christian values. That without Christianity, th these things would not exist as they do today. So that's the key allusion here, is to effectively the sea as being um, um, transformed by the church. Another one which is important, we take it from Isaiah chapter 65, 
which effect is, is the sea as a threat to the nations of the as a threat of the nations against the church. Recall that the beast came from the sea and it represents the Roman Empire. What this is indicating is that the Roman Empire historically will no longer be a threat to the church, which became a historical reality when Constantine converted. In verse three, and I heard a great voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them. Uh, this is, again, a, um, the question is, what, who is speaking? And we've seen this before. The voice that comes from the throne is what? It, it has a liturgical undertone. It's someone standing. It's the cherubim, the angels surrounding the throne that are speaking as part of this liturgy that has been that, that, that begun when St. John was taken up to, to heaven to see what, ha- what, what happens up there. It's very important to us to remember why God is saying that. Let's back up a little bit. In Genesis, what did God do? In Eden, in the garden, what did He do? He walked in the garden with them. God was substantially present in the garden with Adam and Eve. There was no temple, there was no altar, there was no structure, there was Adam and Eve, and there was God. When essentially the entire Bible consists in God trying to recreate this intimacy with His children. His children, wayward and stubborn and willful, left home. They actually got kicked out because of their behavior, right? That's what happened. He kicked them out. But he never ever lost track of them. And throughout the entire history, he was trying to do what? Recreate that intimacy. You see it? When was the first attempt? Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. But to Abraham and Jacob and Isaac, it was only momentary. So for instance, God appeared to Abraham by the tree of Mambre, right? As three uh, angels, right? God spoke to, Isa- to, uh, to Isaiah. He spoke to Jacob using different means. Then with Moses, God spoke to Moses face to face. Moses did not see the face of God. He saw his back. And God wanted to do what? Dwell with his people, Right? He took them out of Egypt and he wanted to dwell in their midst. Instead, what happened? The second fall. The second fall, right? The golden calf. What did God do? He didn't abandon his people. Instead, he dwelt outside the camp in a tent where they could not have access to him directly. Only indirectly. But he didn't abandon them. Then the temple was built. And it was meant to bring all nations to Him. But still, God was hidden in the Holy of Holies. Behind that huge curtain, 24 feet wide, 70 feet tall. And only the high priest could enter beyond that curtain once a year on Yom Kippur. And only stay there a very short time and then skedaddle. Then, Jesus came. Christmas happened. God dwelt among us. He came and dwelt among us as sinners. That is the notion that the Levitical priesthood and the, the Sanhedrin and the Levites, could, not the Levites, the Sanhedrin and the um, scribes simply could not put up with and could not accept. 
that the God hidden behind that curtain in the Holy of Holy could be walking among sinners. Not only among sinners, but could be walking with people who are unclean. That was the height of heresy. How could you say that this man who eats with unclean people and with all these things on the Sabbath is God? The God sitting behind that curtain over there. You understand? It was really difficult. But that's what he wanted all along. Not what we wanted. Notice. Not what we wanted. We wanted to run away. We wanted the idols. We wanted the money, the power, all the goodies of the life. That's the last thing we wanted. So he's been chasing after us. Why? Because he loves us. The Bible is not about God, supreme, ideal, perfect plan. The Bible is not about how God behaves when he is by himself. The Bible is a love letter from a father to his children who are wayward, stubborn, willful, and who are running away from him. That's what scripture is. And so today, because of our weaknesses and because of our need to learn to speak the language of heaven, slowly, slowly, God has created this wonderful intermediary language that we can speak and he can speak, which is called the liturgy. The liturgy is, I think I've told you this before, is the ABC of heaven. We're learning our ABCs so we can go home. I told you that St. Paul speaks a similar language we've seen here in the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 6, verse 16. St. Paul says, We are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live with them and move among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So God himself substantially will be present in among his people. And that's why the the Eucharist is so fundamental to Understanding this book, it is pivotal to a clear understanding of the book of Revelation. So, in verse 5 and 6, he says, Behold, I make all things new. You could render that, I am making. In other words, when he said, I make, he didn't mean the Greek tense, like just as the the French have multiple shades of meaning to indicate time or timeline. The I make really could be rendered as I am making. In other words, I am in the process of making. Not that while I'm talking to you, John, I make it, and then once we're done talking, it's over, it's done. That's not the meaning that is intended. What is intended is, this is an ongoing process of making all things new. Right? Making all things new. So, if the church is new, what what can we say about the church? If the church is constantly made new is the church is renewed, as we have it in the Maronite liturgy, when we begin the year, we begin it with the renewal of the church. This is not some kind of invention we concocted. This is because Christ continuously makes all things new. If the church is made constantly new, what do we say about the church? She is forever young. The church is never old as in you know, decay and death. The church is forever young. Why? Because her, her, her groom constantly renews her. By the way, one reading, one of the things that is lacking in this whole study we've done on the book of Revelation is the moral reading. And I would venture to say to you, husbands, 
that there is a lot that you can learn from the way you treat your wives from this text. Behold, I make all things new. If your wife does not feel that you are renewing her, there's some work for you to do. Because that is the calling. Imitator of Jesus Christ. So this whole rich reading on the moral sense of, of, of the book of Revelation could do a whole, a whole study on that. So he, verse 4, he will, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. So here, there's, we need to understand this appropriately. Death shall be no more, neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Let's understand this appropriately. In the context of our own lives, this is saying something about how we ought to behave in the face of our sufferings, in the face of death, and in the face of pain. We need to realize that God is among us. He is present. Therefore, whenever we are going, we are undergoing pain or suffering or a sense of abandonment or solitude, or whatever the case may be, He is there. The Consoler is there and He is going to wipe away our tears. He's going to take all these things away. What does that mean? It means that when we lose a loved one, the church has actually some guidance around this, when we lose some, a loved one, the proper period of mourning is six months. After that, we move, we move on. And we force ourselves to move on. We just don't sit and wait for the emotions to go away. Not going to happen. For some people, it might last 20 years. But when we move on, God works with us, and He consoles us, and He tempers those emotions, and He gives meaning to our lives. Because He is hope. Right? That's what it means. And we have to act as we believe. Interestingly enough, Sirach chapter 22, verse 11 states, Seven days of mourning for the dead, but for the wicked, fool, a whole lifetime. So seven days, the number of the covenant, the week, essentially a short period of time, of mourning for the dead on the part of those who are righteous, but for the wicked fool, a lifetime. Why? Because he's on his own, and those emotions are really hard to conquer. Right? And that, that's the intended meaning here. Verse 8, uh, the one thing I will point out is that it starts with cowardly. Why? Because sin is cowardice, really. It's a, it's a form of cowardice, of lack of courage. When we sin, we're cowards. Right? It's hard for us to admit that because we think of ourselves otherwise, but that's really the reality of it. Right? We just didn't own up to it. And that's all I'm going to say about this right now. So, we spoke early on about the initial view and appearance of the city. And um, I pointed out to you, in, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the paragraph from verse 9 through 14, um, that the city is not on earth, not in heaven as where God is. It's, she's in between. The city is made out of gold, yet the gold looks like what? Transparent glass. Transparent glass. Remember back then in St. John's time, transparent glass was a real rare commodity. Right? You didn't have that floating all over the place. There was no Home Depot you can go to and get a transparent glass. Right? I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, in the marketing business for Home Depot, but I'm just pointing that out, that this is... It indicates something rather very, very rare. But think about gold that had become transparent glass. So what is that? It's not natural gold, because natural gold does not have the qualities of transparent glass. It is gold that has been sublimated, that has been transformed into something that doesn't look like gold, right? Well, does that remind you of something? 
the Eucharist. Bread that is not bread. So the church shares the same nature of her husband. Just as the Eucharist is this material object that is not it. Right? The church is this material structure that is not it. There's this mystery of the church which is intimately related to the mystery of the Eucharist. Because the church has, shares the same nature as, as her husband. So that's something that is always important to keep in mind. You know, verses 9 through 10 parallels in structure verses 1 and 3 from the chapter 17, where we saw the description of the whore. So an angel takes St. John and shows him the whore, and an angel takes St. John and shows him the bride. You see the parallelism. Here is all Jerusalem that is destined to destruction, and here is New Jerusalem. Both of them share certain characteristics. Both of them have have gold. Both of them have uh, precious stones. And both of them have um, gold, precious stones, and pearls. Both of them have gold, precious stones, and pearls. As I mentioned later, early, last time, the reason why the whore has these things is not because she's trying to show how rich she is, but it is because of her liturgical background. Those were attributes of the clothes of the high priest of the liturgy. But it's just that it's a liturgy that is non-functional anymore. It is one that is not true to God's glory, and it is scheduled to be replaced. The city has the glory of God. This is important because Ezekiel, in his vision, saw the Shekinah, a Sakinah, the presence of God, leave the temple. And it was never back. The Holy Spirit never came back. It used to be that in the Temple of Solomon, in the Holy of Holy, the Holy Spirit dwelt on the mercy seat. It was the constant presence of the Holy Spirit. The presence of God. God was present. It was, of course, a foreshadowing of the Eucharist. Hmm? And Ezekiel saw the Holy Spirit depart from the temple prior to destruction by the Babylonian forces. And when the second temple was rebuilt, and when the third temple was built, that Holy of Holy was empty. It did not have the Holy Presence. And now, St. John sees it coming back. Now, the twelve angels who are on the doors recall the protective love of God for Israel because a guardian angel, right? Always think of a guardian angel. So these are the angels that protect the church. And that's why we think that, you know, a, a, a bishop will have more than one angel, protect one, more than one guardian angel, and a cardinal will have more than, uh, you know, gar- more than one guardian angel, and the pope will have more. What? Because of this, right? There are more guardian angels around the church than around every person, Okay. So that's from the perspective of a guardian angel. It indicates the active role the angels play in the New Testament. They protect every church. They protect every basilica. They protect the entire church uh, and, and the cities of, and the countries of the world. And we've mentioned the fact that before the angel prevented Adam and Eve from re-entering the garden here, they are making sure the doors remain open for people to be able to come and enter the, the church. The names of the 12 tribes suggest the family of God. Right? Every door has a name of one of the sons of Jacob. So therefore, it is one family. The family of Jacob Israel, who is a representative or a symbol of the new Israel, Jesus Christ. So no one can enter through these doors unless he be a member of this family. And the foundation stones have the names of the apostles. It is interesting because historically, the, the tribes come before the apostles. So you can see this is not a historical reading. In other words, the tribes ought to be the foundation, and maybe the the apostles the gates. But 
it's reversed. Why? Because it's a liturgical order. It is the hierarchy of the church. As I said earlier, God, Christ made it possible for the church to come down from heaven and the apostles laid down the foundation. And that's what we see. Another thing I point out to you, oftentimes the question comes up, can one be certain of his salvation? Can one be certain of his salvation? And I think, this is my own opinion, I believe this text answers in the positive. Why? Why do I say that? Because what is St. John saying? This heavenly Jerusalem coming down from heaven has on the foundation the names of who? He sees his name as a foundation of the church. He doesn't say anything about it. He he doesn't even stop and and reflect on it. That's St. John's style. But imagine, you see your name as a foundation of the church. It is important also to keep a loose uh, hand when it comes to images, right? Foundation. Sometimes Protestants argue with us. Jesus Christ is the only foundation. How could you call the apostle foundation? Well, I don't call the apostle foundation. Scripture calls them foundation. All right? Okay. So, Jesus is the foundation stone. We read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 10 through 11. That's the one pair of passage I'll constantly quote from. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 11. And we quote it too. Yeah, absolutely. Jesus is the foundation stone. Yeah, no problem. But Scripture tells us also, Peter is the, found, is the foundation. In Matthew, chapter 16, verse 18. In Revelation 21, 14, the apostles are the foundation. And also, in uh, Ephesians two ten. So, then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the holy ones and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the capstone. Through him the whole structure is held together and grows into a temple sacred in the Lord. In him you you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. This is the same imagery as we see in the book of Revelation. This whole structure of the church is the community of the faithful with the hierarchy and all the community of the saints being built up on the foundation of the apostles, Jesus Christ. Okay? We talked about the measurement of the city and I pointed out to you that it cannot be a simple number. It is really symbolic and we described what that means. Right? One thing, what does by a man's measure that is an angel's mean? This is very confusing to a lot of commentators in verse... uh, Verse 17, he also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by a man's measure that is an angel's. What does that mean, by a man's measure that is an angel's? Well, it is confusing until you realize what has happened before. I told you in the Old Covenant, the measure of the angels and the measure of humans was different because we were not on equal footing. The Old Covenant had heaven close for us. The road was barred. So we were not on equal footing with the angels. But now, in a new covenant, we are. So a man's measure is an angel's measure. Because we are now both on equal footing. All right? One thing I will tell you about the, founda- the precious stones. These are taken from Exodus 28, 17, 20. Exodus 28, 17, 20. And Exodus 39, 8 through 14. 39, 8 through 14. In both of these passages, the breastplate of the priest has 12 stones, three, uh, four rows of three, right? Four rows of three. And they're pretty much the same stones, as the same precious stones as we see here. 
The one thing I'll point out to you that's really interesting is that this list, the list that is given in Exodus, ends with Jasper. And each stone was for a particular tribe. So the last tribe is that of Benjamin, who was the youngest. Now what was interesting about Benjamin? The tribe of Benjamin, what did the tribe of Benjamin have on its land when the land was subdivided among the tribes? The tribe of Benjamin had Jerusalem. Jerusalem was built in the land of Benjamin. Okay? Jasper, Benjamin. In Revelation, St. John says, we have these gates, the foundation is the apostles, and then he then enumerates the precious stones associated with each one of those gates. Now, which gate do you think you would start with? Based on what we know from the the, the, the way the apostles were listed in the New Testament. Peter, right? Peter. And where does he give that gate? Which precious stone does he give that gate? Jasper. The precious stone of the tribe of Benjamin. So he takes the youngest, Benjamin, makes it be the first, Peter. And he gives Peter Jasper. Why? Because Jerusalem... The new Jerusalem is founded on the rock. Okay, and that's how, by the way, if you ever came across these precious stones associated with the apostles, that's where it comes from. So the precious stone of St. Peter is Jasper. There is enough evidence, I can't go through it right now, to tell you that the, the way we read this is not that the, precious, that the foundation had a precious stone on them. Rather, the foundation was that precious stone. The foundation was itself the precious stone. So if you imagine now having as foundation a set of precious stones, it gives you an idea of what? Of the glory of God. Because these precious stones have different colors. And this rainbow of color is an indication of the presence of the Holy Spirit, the glory of the Spirit, and, the, and, and also the glory of God. And oh, by the way, when you see tabernacles which are adorned with precious stones, understand why. Because the tabernacle is supposed to represent this, supposed to be a replica of this city. It has to be inlaid with gold inside and out. It has to have precious stones all around it. So that's why we do it this way, not because we want to be ostentatious and show the world that the Catholic Church is rich and that sort of nonsense. It is because we are trying to teach people about the reality of the church, the reality of the liturgy. That's why we have to do it this way. Now, in the internal feature of the city, in verse 22 through 27, St. John says there is no temple. We know why. Because now we're back to the garden when there was no temple. God is the temple, in a sense. God is present substantially. Okay? And the reason why we have a tabernacle is to indicate to us the city. This always present and not yet. It reminds us of that separation between our reality here and the reality of heaven. But it reminds us also of the connection between us and heaven. That's why we have a tabernacle. The reason why it's stated that there is that the, the, it, we don't need the sun and the moon to, to light the church, it isn't, again, because we don't need the physical luminaries, the sun and the moon. But it is to indicate that the church is not lit by the luminaries of the old covenant, which were natural sun, moon, and star. It is lit by a supernatural source of light, which is God himself. It's simply indicating the superiority of this covenant over the one that was past. Not saying that the, the sun and the moon are gone, 
and there was no light anymore. It simply says that we are not illuminated by the wisdom of the old covenant. However great and holy it was, it was still lacking. We're illuminated by the wisdom of the new covenant, which is perfect. Because God is the source of light of this new covenant. So, for instance, in Isaiah 60, verse uh, 19, we read, No longer will you have the sun for light by day, and the brightness of the moon will not give light to you, but the Lord will be to you for an everlasting light, and your God will be for your beauty. The word beauty is mentioned. Interestingly enough, in Revelation 21-23, this prophecy of Isaiah is repeated verbatim, word for word, But instead of ending with, your God will be for your beauty, it reads, the lamp of it was the lamb. So there is a change in the last verse to tell us what is this beauty and who is the God. And it is the lamb. So never forget this aspect that God is beautiful. Now in the city, the city's river, which is the concluding part, We have the images of the spring of living water flowing from the temple in Ezekiel 47.19, meshed with the image of the water flowing from Jerusalem in Zechariah 14.8. So these two images are combined to tell us, as I said earlier, that we, the, the church is the garden. If you notice one thing that seems to be lacking in the description of, this church, of the city, there's no garden. I mean, if, if, if anybody were to consider this city as a Material, materialistic city, 15,000 miles long by 15,000 miles wide by 15,000 miles high without a garden. Talk about a megapolis. I mean, imagine the city. I mean, it's, it's, it's monstrous. That's not what is intended, right? It's a combination of images to describe the glory, the beauty, perfection of the church as the sort of Garden of Eden 2.0. That's what, it, what the church is, right? It is the Garden of Eden made better. And this, the, the, the river, uh, by the way, um, in, in Eden, there was also gold, delium, and onyx, which were tributaries of the river, just as this river is flowing in a street made out of gold. So we, we can see the, the continuous, the ongoing parallelism between the garden and the city to remind us of where we are when we enter this church. And the river brings forth life. So Christ truly nourishes His church. And what are the, ch- the Christians? There are these trees that are growing on the side of the river, and they bear fruit, right? They bear fruit. And then the leaves of the tree are for healing. The leaves of the tree of life are for healing. It's very, very interesting because in Lebanon, not too long ago, I think two years ago, Saint Charbel appeared to uh, a woman whom he had healed earlier. Her name is uh, Noah Chami. And uh, he came to her on Christmas Eve, and she had an oak tree outside her house, a simple oak tree. And he was carrying a gold, what's that tool that you water with? The bucket you carry that has sort of a spout with multiple holes. Right, well, it was made out of gold. And he took it, and he watered that oak tree. He watered that oak tree, and then he told her, give the leaves of this tree for people, let them boil it, make a tea out of it, and drink it for healing. Problem is that most of us are not acquainted with Scripture, so we don't understand what the saints are talking about most of the time. We think they're making that stuff up. 
Right? But, but, but effectively, the saints are constantly pointing to the greatest miracle of all times, the liturgy. This is the ongoing miracle that has been ongoing for 2,000 years. And they keep on reminding us of this reality by these actions. So, whereas in Eden, the trees themselves were just plants, in the new Eden, the trees who bear fruits are actually supernatural souls, saints that bear fruits. Who are they feeding? The world. God feeds us. God puts food on the table. Okay? For the children. And what is that food? Himself. He feeds us. The crumbs are what? What are the crumbs? Our good deeds. Our good deeds. Our prayers. Those are the crumbs. What happens to them? They fall down from the table. And who do they feed? And the dog represents what? The world. Why? Because the dog back then was an unclean animal. Was considered unclean. Therefore, it was a representation, a symbol of all those who are not part of the covenant. I actually once uh, read a commentary by these two women. I had a video who were talking about this passage. And their understanding was that, well, you know, Jesus was affected by his time and culture. And he was a man after all. I mean, you know, what can you do? He just had to talk this way about these people. Okay. Beautiful. Catholic, by the way. So, do you understand the image? This is the same image we have here. The river, the water, is Christ himself. That water nourishes us. When it nourishes us, what is it doing to us? It's making us bear fruit. What kind of fruits? They're heavenly fruits. Because it's changing our nature, isn't it? Recall that for us to be children of God, our nature has to change. Because a human brings forth a human. And you can't ask a frog to bring forth a, a human. It's not going to work. You can wait for a long time. Not going to work. Right? A frog will bring forth a frog, right? A dog brings forth a dog, etc., etc. Well, how can God call us substantially His children? He's divine, we're human. Doesn't work. The only way for it to work is if He takes our human nature and divinizes it. Makes us divine. And He does that by feeding us. Us, in turn, we do what? We feed the world. We feed the, why are we feeding the world? For two reasons. Number one, number one, to be a sharer in His glory. To be, we imitate Him. Right? We are imitators of Him. So if He's feeding us, we feed others. Because we imitate Him. Whatever you do to the least of my brethren, you did it to me. What does He mean by that? He said, when you do something to the least of my brethren... When you do it imperfectly, when you do it perfectly well, when you do it completely right, but you do it, I will consider it, I will accept it as a repayment for what I've done for you. He's basically telling us, all right, listen, I know you cannot repay me back what I've done for you. I know you can't love me the way I love you. I always play this game with my kids. I love you more. No, I love you more. No, I love you more. No, I love you more. More, more, more. I just play this game between them and I. We can play this game. But with Jesus, I always lose. I can't say I love you more. So he knows that. But if I do, whatever I do, even imperfectly, 
to a brethren of mine, he will consider it done for him. That, all these images is leading to the same truth. We come here to the liturgy, we are fed, so we can turn around and bicker and complain and criticize the church, the world, the politics, the weather, the loto, the TV, the internet, the health. The... They're going to see God's face. What does that mean to see God's face? means, number one, the Holy of Holies is open. No longer do we have that separation that we had before. Okay? The children have access to God. We are before the throne of God. Our nature is being transformed. It's been divinized. It is being made compatible with the nature of God, so that when we go to heaven, we can be with Him. We have to be like Him, to be with Him. Right? Yeah, I said the first reason... And I went off a tangent. The second reason we feed the world is that the world might get, might get a taste or a foretaste of how good God tastes. Precisely. But why would you make somebody join the church? Because you want to give them something that really tastes good first. If you can give them something that tastes good, they're going to say, Whoa, I want more of this. You say, Sure, I can give you more. But you know what? It's even better. I just gave you a candy. The real cake is inside. You understand? This, keep that as a principle when you're dealing with non-Catholics. We're not there to beating them, beat them on the head. How could you tell somebody, look how this cake, you bring a cake. Isn't that cake wonderful? That's not a cake, he says. He doesn't even see it. And what do we do? Of course it's a cake. Here's the list of ingredients. No, it's not a cake. And what do we do at the end? We throw the cake in his face. And we think, oh, he's going to convert this way. It doesn't work this way, right? So keep that in mind. This, this, this humility and respect of others. We don't know where they are in their journey. We don't know how far they need to go. We don't know what God wants from us. Right? We don't know. He puts them in our way sometimes to test us. To see if we're going to ask, am I supposed to talk? Do you want me to talk? Or are we going to be, okay, okay, let me go. Two by four. I'm going to show you i got a score to settle with you. Right? He's going to want to see how we're going to act. And then, in some cases, he might make us talk. And we say something, we fumble, and we don't say it right. And after that, what do we do? We settle score with ourselves. How did you say that? You should have said this. And, you know. and even with all of this complication, we're still feeding that person. Imagine if we did it with complete charity how effective we could be. So, to see God's face, the Holy of Holies is open, the children have access to God, their nature has been divinized, so that they may see God's face. They are His children and have access to His throne. They are His children. He is their dad. So in the final analysis, the final vision of the book deals with these five realities. New covenant, new temple, new Israel, New Jerusalem, new creation. This is the order of the church. This is the great commission that Christ gave His apostles at the end of the Gospel of St. Matthew. Go forth. Go forth. You go forth. Make disciples of all nations. Meaning what? Bring them all into the new Jerusalem. And behold, I am with you until the consummation of the ages. 
He is with us until the consummation of the ages. The question is, are we with Him? That is the question. And so, end to end, from beginning to this, beginning of the visions to this one, what did, we, what did we see? We saw first the churches on earth. Christ walking among them. I am with you. I examine. I see. I hear. I keep record. And I will repay everyone according to his deed. Then St. John is taken up to heaven to see the liturgy from above as it's flowing. And in this liturgy, we see God who receives the praise and glory of all the church. And as a result of this, these seals are opened and warnings are sent to the world. And warnings are followed by punishments and punishments are followed by judgment. And at the end of the judgment, at the end of the cycle, those powers which were obstacles to the growth of his church those powers which were persecuting his church are laid aside. And the church is renewed. And the community of faith continues. And the church comes down from heaven. Essentially, the church is constantly coming down from heaven. It's a dynamic reality that will never cease until the end of time. And this cycle repeats itself throughout history. Others, other nations come up, other people are persecutors of the church. They come up and they are persecuting the church. And the church looks always like it's church is punny, small, disorder, doesn't know what is going to happen. And the church is always on the brink of destruction, it would seem. And yet, over and over again, those who persecute the church are gone. The most recent in our history is what? Communism. I mean, we, we just take it for granted. But just imagine what communism was. It covered more than half of the earth. And it was that set against the church. Where is the communism now? And others will come after it. And they will have, will, they will go the same way that the Roman Empire went and that every enemy of the church went. Because the church is from everlasting to everlasting. Our duty as Catholics is to advance the kingdom of God. We reign. How do we reign? When we participate and celebrate the liturgy the best we can, we reign. When we suffer, we reign. That's how we reign. That's how we change the face of the world. That's how we feed those who are outside. That's how we bring people to Christ for His glory. That is our task. That is the magnificent task given to every Catholic on this planet. What a waste if we do not respond to this call. What a waste. And so, between this week and next week, take that as a point of meditation. Do I love the church? Truly. Is the church my mother? Truly. How thirsty I am. What am I thirsty for? And how much do I love God? And what am I doing for my neighbor? Think about those things. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.